When God called Israel to be his people, he left them his law, the Torah, to guide and instruct them. And it would be God's written word from then on where they would learn of God and find his will for their lives. And God's law was extensive, but it was not exhaustive. The Torah did not tell the Jews how to live in every single instance of life. And so how then did God expect them to live? Take, for example, the fourth commandment. To remember the Sabbath day, Exodus 20, verse 10, instructed Israel to do no work on the Sabbath. But how do you define work? The law didn't say, like, what technically counts as work? And therefore, some Jews wanting to keep this command, they wanting to please the Lord, uh, believed it was therefore up to them to go ahead and define what work is. And they created a list, a long list of their own commands that went on to further elaborate what counts as work, what work is prohibited. And their laws became just as binding as the Torah. So, for example, planting, plowing, reaping, threshing, and cooking were all prohibited on the Sabbath. Some of these laws, though, seemed a bit much. Dissection is classified as work, which is just defined as cutting objects into their most usable state like when you chop veggies for a salad. But there's a loophole to all these laws. So if you chop your veggies slightly larger than usual, that is permitted. That doesn't count as work because you're not reducing them to their smallest possible usable state. These Jewish laws have extended into the modern era. The use of electricity is okay on the Sabbath, but turning something that uses electricity on or off is not permitted on the Sabbath. That is work. This means today using a refrigerator is permitted on the Sabbath, but if you're going to use your fridge on the Sabbath, before the Sabbath, you have to unscrew the light bulb that turns on when you open your fridge. That is counted as work. Rules like this carry on ad nauseum and doesn't take long before you think to yourself, I kind of think they're missing the point of the fourth commandment. And that's precisely what Jesus said to the Jews of his day as he rebuked them for warping and distorting God's word. They truly missed the heart of God's law. And although the rabbinic Jews got it wrong, realize today this issue still stands. Today, Christians in the church, we too look to God's completed word for guidance, to learn of him, to learn of his will for our lives. How are we to live? But even the New Testament is not exhaustive. We are not told what to do in every single aspect of life. We, we likewise want to be pleasing to the Lord, but how are we to live when God's word seems silent? These questions of interpretation and application confront Christians in every age. We know from the Lord we're not to fall into the trap that the Jews fell into. Legalism, just resort to creating a whole bunch of new rules. We're not going to go there. Instead, we must look to the heart of God's word and will and judge accordingly. But even still, that is not always easy. Questions on how to live abound. I know that because you have asked some of those questions on how to live. We've recently been doing a few Q&A sermons where you get the chance to ask some of your Bible questions and I'll answer them from the pulpit, hopefully to the benefit of all. Today will be our last one as we wrap things up and resume going through the Gospel of Matthew next Sunday, Lord willing. But for our last batch of questions, I selected some that entered the gray zone. The questions we have for today, I'll deal with seeking guidance on issues where the Bible doesn't really say. There's no 
single chapter and verse that will give you the direct, clear answer you're looking for. Scripture doesn't spoon feed us the answers to these questions. And so we're left wondering, what are we to do? We know that God and his word is clear. And hopefully by the illumination of his spirit, we can apply wisdom and understanding to these questions and still provide some biblical guidance. That's our aim. That's our task for this morning as we resume and finish up these Q&A messages. So with that in mind, let's begin with some of these questions. The first being this. First question one of you asked, should Christians forgive those who do not repent in sinning against them? Should Christians forgive those who do not repent in sinning against them? Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. We should therefore be the most forgiving people in the world. I I trust you realize that. But to answer this question, we really have to first biblically define what it means to forgive, what forgiveness even is, and then we can consider how, how much of that we apply to someone who's not repented and sinning against us. And I think, unfortunately, many Christians inadvertently operate off of an unbiblical understanding or notion of forgiveness. It's where you might say something like, you know, I forgive you, but I don't want to talk to you anymore. Or I forgive you, but we can't be friends anymore. Or I forgive you, but you know, you're going to have to make this up to me. That might sound typical to you or even fair. But just as a simple rule, you know, we're called to forgive others in the same manner in which God has forgiven us. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And Colossians 3.13 says the same. It says, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also should you. And so just think, how would you like it if the Lord said to you, I forgive you, but you can't pray to me anymore. We can't have fellowship. No, but thankfully God forgives us freely, fully, unconditionally, all because of Christ who died to pay the penalty for all of our sins. We are called to forgive others in the same way. But still, how exactly are we defining this thing called forgiveness? Forgiveness is not just forgetting. You know, many like to say forgive and forget, but you realize that it's not actually from the Bible, that that's not in Scripture. Technically, it's, it's not possible for an omniscient God to delete his memory and forget our sins. God cannot forget. However, as Isaiah 43, 25 says, he no longer remembers your sins, meaning he's, he no longer calls them to mind, no longer allows them to impact your relationship. Forgiveness is also not a feeling. If you wait to forgive someone until your feelings are fully in alignment there's a good chance you will never forgive that person. We're not to be led by feelings, but by truth. And most often your, your feelings won't change until you render biblical forgiveness. Biblical forgiveness instead is a decision of the will. It's a decision you are making. The main Greek word is sophimi, meaning to remit, to release, to let go. You're, you're letting them go. Biblically, when you forgive someone, you're, you're making a decision to release them from, from their sin debt, from their guilt against you. Jesus reflected this understanding in the Lord's Prayer, reminding us to pray for the Lord to forgive us our debts, just as we have forgiven those indebted against us, trusting and hoping we forgive those indebted against us. When you sin against God, it, it creates 
You can say like a debt, a debt of guilt. Justice demands payment. And similarly, when you wrong someone else, justice demands that wrong be righted. And you can try and make someone pay. That's often what we do. In vengeance and revenge, you want to make them pay for what they have done to you. You might attack them, punish them in some way, just try to get back at them, at least even the debt. But seeing how God chose to give us grace, that which we don't deserve, and release us, cancel our debt, we are called by him to do the same. If vengeance or retribution or justice are called for, well, we leave that to God, Romans 12, or to civil authority, Romans 13. It's not, we're not ignoring justice. But for us, we are not in the place as believers, as judge, jury, executioner. We are called to overcome evil with good, Romans 12, and freely forgive. We are to just release a person from their sin debt against us. And again, our forgiveness of others needs to reflect God's forgiveness of us. And that involves a decision not to hold our sin against us. Like Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4 says, It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. And like it's reflected in Isaiah 55, verse 7, which says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord. For he will have compassion on him and to our God. It says, for he will abundantly pardon. There is a pardoning, a a remission. Now, for the sake of time, I've not found a better distilling of the essence of biblical forgiveness than what's found in Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. We've used it often, quoted often. It's just so helpful. And in the book, he puts together basically the biblical understanding of forgiveness in a series of four promises. And I still find these most helpful. And I'll repeat them for you. These four promises of forgiveness. When you forgive someone biblically, this is essentially what you are promising. This is the decision of the will that you're making. First, I will not dwell on this incident. Second, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Third, I will not talk to others about this incident. And fourth, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Each of these promises is grounded in biblical principles. And I find that they capture the essence of forgiveness. This is what you are saying or promising or committing when you forgive someone. Now, of course, regarding someone who has greatly sinned against us, we, we certainly hope they would humble themselves and repent and seek our forgiveness. But we know that that doesn't always happen. So we can now turn to our question, you know, should we render such forgiveness to an unrepentant offender? Well, here there's, there definitely is an unconditional dimension to our forgiveness. We should unconditionally render forgiveness to someone in our heart. This is talking about having a ready attitude of forgiveness. And Christ himself reflected this attitude in Matthew 11, 25 and 26. When he said this, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, 
so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. See, the issue here is not actually, in this case, reconciling with your brother. He doesn't say, in this case, go reconcile. Rather, in your heart, as you're praying, forgive that person. The one who sinned against you, in your heart, you need to forgive them. It's kind of like milk left to sit out on the counter for too long. If you hold on to someone else's sins for too long, it will spoil and poison you. And will turn into bitterness and anger and wrath and malice. And now their sin against you has turned into your own sin against the Lord. This is why you're called and Christ calls us before God to have a clean heart to just forgive them. Forgive them in your heart. As, as Sandy argues in his book, this essentially boils down to you're making the first promise of forgiveness. That I will not dwell on this incident. Really to avoid inciting your own flesh. You need to put the other person's sin out of your mind. This means putting away all, all bitter thoughts that come to your mind when you think of this person's wrong against you. This really reflects the, the put off, put on notion that, that Paul teaches in Ephesians 4. We read earlier how he, he reminds us to forgive others. Just as the Lord forgave us, we are to put on a forgiving spirit. But right before he told us what to put off in the verse before Ephesians 4.31 he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And those all, I'll describe anti-forgiveness, the opposite of forgiveness. We, we cannot go there. So you must see to it that your heart is free from malice toward others, and you do that by forgiving them in your heart and just trust the situation to the Lord. This is the unconditional dimension to forgiveness. You are releasing them from the guilt of their sin against you in your heart and trusting it to the Lord. He will judge. He will right all wrongs. It's not your place. You are trusting it to the Lord and forgiving them in your heart. But at the same time, full forgiveness, and we might say restoration, do appear conditional on the guilty party's repentance. Jesus gave us the other side of the coin in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Luke 17, 3 and 4, where he said elsewhere, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And Jesus makes pretty plain in that passage that there, there's some conditional nature to forgiveness. It's conditioned on their repentance. They have to come and say, I repent. They must see their sin before a full reconciliation can take place. Their sin has created a wedge in the relationship. Full forgiveness removes that wedge. But full forgiveness only comes when the guilty party has repented. They have to recognize their sin. And in essence... You can't make the other three promises of forgiveness until the other person repents. You know, promise number two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. No, I, I might need to bring it up again. That the hurt is unresolved. I, I might need to still confront you in your sin. Didn't Jesus say, if your brother sins, rebuke him? That's going to involve bringing the issue up again. I'm not going to use it against you vindictively, but 
it might need to come up again. It's unresolved. The third promise, I will not talk to others about this incident. Yeah, we're not going to gossip, but I might need to still involve others to help. Maybe a peacemaker, a counselor. If you're a believer in unrepentant sin, this, this might go to church discipline. That, that involves telling other people about your sin. Others might still need to get involved. I, I can't make that promise. Fourth, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Well, by definition, this incident is still standing between us and hindering our relationship. That's not on you. That, that's on them. For that to change, they need to repent, recognize they're wrong, and, and remove the wedge. And so a complete exchange of forgiveness and total reconciliation is conditioned on their repentance. In real life, though, sometimes that never comes. Let's just take the extreme example. You're dealing with an unbelieving family member who's hostile to the things of the Lord, So, look, you're not going to get from them pretty much ever biblical repentance or even any notion of repentance. And if that happens, that just means, as a result, you're going to suffer many unaccounted for wrongs. You will be wronged and there will be no right until the Lord makes things right. And this is why relationships suffer in this fallen world where sin reigns. In such cases, what should you do? Well, I'd say just heed Romans 12, 18, which calls you to be at peace with all men so far as it depends on you. You be at peace with all people so, so much as it depends on you. You can't control them. You can't control their response. You can't make anyone repent. But you can control yourself, and that's what you must do. And that means negatively, you're, you're not going to add your own sin to this conflict. You're not going to add bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. You're, you're not going to add sin to sin. But as far as it depends on you, you'll, you'll be at peace with them. Forgive them in your heart. Positively, you will render a type of forgiveness in your heart. Release them from that guilt. It's in God's hands. He will judge. He will determine what is right. You will trust him to judge. It's not your place. As for you, be at peace and never, though, give up seeking reconciliation and praying for that person to repent and ultimately, of course, to come to the gospel. Question number two. Let's move on. Question two. Is divorce ever biblically permitted in situations of abuse? Is divorce ever biblically permitted in situations of abuse? This is a very important question that scripture does not directly address. There's no direct verse on abuse and divorce in the Bible. The Bible presents two clear allowances for divorce, adultery and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. But what if you have a spouse, it's usually the wife, that's being regularly battered by her husband, but he's not committing adultery and he doesn't want out of the marriage, so... So what do you do? Is she stuck? Is she free to separate? Can she divorce? Can she leave but not divorce and just live in a, in a married limbo state? What do we do? Sadly, this is more and more these days not an uncommon situation. And so the question, does the Bible ever permit divorce for abuse? And we have to say our, our goal is not to be driven by emotions, but scripture. We just want to know what does the Bible say? That's why all these questions on marriage, divorce, and remarriage are so hard because the Bible doesn't say that much. 
There's a few key verses, yes, and they establish a few key principles, yes. But like, it seems like the number of divorce and remarriage scenarios that we encounter in real life very quickly outpace the Bible's few examples of what to do. So we're left in that gray zone. We're not sure what to do because we don't have any specific verse telling us exactly what to do. We most definitely submit to scripture and we want to be guided by scripture and we will adhere to everything the Bible does say about divorce. But when questions like this take us into that gray zone, it really becomes more of a wisdom issue. The challenge is to employ biblical principles aided by God's wisdom to try and make a right decision. So let's try and do that with this question. And so first we got to very quickly recap what the Bible does say about divorce. I'll just summarize for the sake of time, but we know that God created the institution of marriage. And he has a high view of it. It's a covenant between one man, one woman. It's meant to be for life. But this is a fallen world. And there are some instances where this lifelong covenant is broken. One example is death. And Paul in Romans 7 makes clear how death ends the marriage covenant and opens up the possibility of remarriage. But there are ways the covenant bond of marriage can be broken before death. And because of man's hardness of heart, and as as a concession to provide some peace and protection to the innocent party, God has allowed divorce in some instances. And Christ himself in Matthew 19 verse 9, for example, Gave a concession for divorce when it comes to adultery. And in 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul adds abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. More on that verse later. In all, although it is permitted at times, we must have a high view of marriage and a low view of divorce. Divorce is never commanded. It is simply allowed. We don't glory in it. We're not going to rejoice in it. It always signals that sin has won a little victory. In this world, we have to see it as a last resort. Even when the marital bonds are broken, look, repentance and restoration are always better. That's always going to be what we seek. That's when God is most glorified. Even when someone does something wrong, God is glorified with repentance and restoration. There's hope, there's healing. We are always going to push for that as much as we can. But in this fallen world, that does not always happen. Some may persist in unrepentance, and in such cases, divorce can be a form of mercy and protection for the offended party. But now the question, does this extend to instances of spousal abuse? That's our main question now. And here, to start, we're guided by another principle of Scripture, that that God has a heart for the weak and defenseless, for those suffering injustice. We We are right to protect the weak. And so at the very least, we would seek to provide immediate protection to the spouse who's being physically abused. This would involve a degree of separation and protection for a time. We would protect those in danger. This, is, uh, this would most often also involve the civil authorities. Spousal abuse is a criminal act, thankfully, in our country still. And according to Romans 13, 4, The state bears the sword as an avenger, bringing wrath on the one who practices evil. That's their job. And it's only right to make an abusive spouse face the consequences of his or her actions. 
And in addition, civil authority is meant to deter evil, Romans 13, verse 3. So at the very least, we would likewise involve civil authorities. But still, what if this issue goes on? What if the civil authorities don't do anything? Does divorce ever become an option biblically? At this point, we would need to establish, is this abusive spouse a believer or an unbeliever? If they claim to be a believer, then our first course of action would be church discipline. The state bears the sword, but the church holds the keys. God gave the church, so to speak, the keys to the kingdom. He's given the church authority on such spiritual matters. And he wills for the church to use that authority to seek the repentance and restoration of sinning members. That would include the believer caught in abuse. He needs to repent and turn and be restored. That's what God wants us to do first. Seek restoration through repentance. But if the guilty party refuses to repent, well, then church discipline would run its course and the abusive spouse would be put out of the church and declared by church discipline an unbeliever, a false believer. That's the point of church discipline. In this case, this is a very important step. You know, for one, just to to apply the sanctified pressure of the church on the sinning member to, to plead with him and lead him to repentance, to see his sin or her sin for that matter, and to repent and sin no more and for the marriage to be restored. That can happen. That's always our aim. But when it comes to the question of divorce, when we're talking about anything except adultery, the door is only open if you are married to an unbeliever. If you have two believers, God expects them to reconcile through repentance and restoration. Only when the abusive spouse is an unbeliever or declared a false believer through church discipline, that the door would be open to the divorce exception found in 1 Corinthians 7. So you can turn there now if you want to follow along. 1 Corinthians 7 deals with divorce with an unbelieving spouse. Divorce with an unbelieving spouse. In 1 Corinthians, Paul was dealing with many practical problems within the church. One of them, you have all these people getting saved, but their spouses were not necessarily getting saved. And so you have all these people now finding themselves married to unbelievers. And they wonder like, what should we do? Should we divorce them because they're not Christians? Or what do we do? He tells them, no, remain with your spouse. But he has some instruction though, some additional instruction on believers married to unbelievers. Believers with believers are expected to reconcile and stay married. No exceptions. But believer, or I guess the only exception is adultery. Believer with an unbeliever, uh, this other door opens up. Look at verse, chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. He says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. But jump down to verse 15. He gives the other side. He says, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now notice here, in both cases, the ball is put in the court of the unbelieving spouse is their action will determine what happens next. If the unbelieving spouse 
consents to live together with the believing spouse, then you're bound. You do not have an allowance for divorce here biblically. But if the unbelieving spouse leaves, then he says, you're not bound. You're not under bondage. You're called to peace. Divorce becomes an option. As you can tell, though, a lot hinges on what Paul means by an unbelieving spouse leaving. At first glance, you might think it just means physical departure, like they pack up their bags and they physically leave. And that would be included. But given the parallel he's making between verses 12 and 13 and 15, or rather the contrast, it's clear that that this action in verse 15 of them leaving is the opposite of the action in verse 12. In verse 12, the unbelieving spouse, it says, consents to live together. They consent to dwell together with the believing spouse, and therefore divorce is not allowed. Verse 15 is the opposite case where they leave, which is akin to saying they no longer consent to dwell together. They no longer are pleased to dwell together. Then divorce becomes allowed. But that just kicks the can down the road because now we're wondering, okay, what does it mean for them to consent to dwell together with the believing spouse? What does it mean for them to be pleased to dwell together? That is hard to say. The Greek word here is sunodokeo, meaning to take pleasure in another person. It's a broad term that is not really further defined here in the context. But this is where some biblical scholars would make a case for abuse to be included as a type of this abandonment, if we can use a word to summarize it, abandonment. The issue here is not just that the unbelieving spouse leaves, but that they demonstrate they are not pleased to dwell with the believing spouse. And very often, they refuse to vacate the premises or even the marriage. But one would argue that by forms of physical or emotional abuse, they are vacating the marriage. The unbelieving spouse can make clear in other ways that they are not pleased to dwell with the believing spouse. This text says nothing about divorce for abuse. But you might say it leaves the door open based on your interpretation of pleased to dwell with. Many would add that when the abused spouse is forced to flee for his or her safety, which is the right thing to do, really the abusive spouse is still the one responsible for this desertion, for this type of abandonment, just as much as if they were the ones who picked up their bags and left. They are the ones who have caused this type of abandonment to take place. The abusive spouse, I think, often digs in their heels. They refuse to abandon the physical property or the marriage. But by their abusive actions, they show no concern for the marriage covenant. And they prove that they're not pleased to live with this believing spouse. You can say that the indefinite language of 1 Corinthians 7.15 leaves open this line of reasoning. In addition, there's a second argument used to potentially include abuse as a grounds for divorce. This was made popular by the, the prominent theologian Wayne Grudem, who just a year ago changed his position on this issue. He used to be very rigid in his view of abandonment, meaning physical departure only. This only counts when they physically pack their bags and leave. That's the only exception here, but he a year ago changed his position. And that's because he, as he further studied verse 15, he did a deep research into the Greek phrase in verse 15, in such cases, which has been neglected by most commentators, in such cases. Verse 15, it says, the brother or sister is not under bondage. In such 
cases. You see how that's plural? Makes you wonder, like, what cases? What, what does Paul have in mind here? What other cases? Is he just talking about the singular case of physical departure? If so, why not use the singular? Why is he using the plural? And this phrase is not found in the plural elsewhere in the Bible. But Grudem did extensive research in ancient Greek writings, and he displayed how when this phrase is used in the plural, it always in- includes more situations than just the original example. So the point he makes is that if Paul meant to refer to physical desertion as the only case of an unbe- unbelieving spouse being not pleased to dwell with a believing spouse, he would have used the singular. But here, using the plural, again, you could argue it opens the door for other cases of types or other cases or types of abandonment. Now, other ways the unbelieving spouse can demonstrate they're not pleased to dwell with the believing spouse. And if that's the case, then it wouldn't be hard to see unrepentant physical abuse as a type of abandonment, as an instance of someone really proving that they do not want to dwell together. In the case of unrepentant physical abuse, the unbelieving spouse has already broken the marriage covenant and proven not pleased to dwell with the believing spouse. And so divorce could be pursued per, you might say, the spirit of this text. And so in all, because of the ambiguity of the language Paul uses in this passage, an argument can be made that the door is open to include abuse as grounds for divorce, interpreting it as a type of abandonment where the unbelieving spouse violently demonstrates they're not pleased to dwell with their believing spouse. In conclusion then, yes, I do believe there are some instances where abuse could serve as biblical grounds for divorce. But like I stressed at the beginning, this is a wisdom issue uh, through and through. I would refrain from making any sort of blanket statement about divorce for abuse at all. I make no such blanket statement because it's just not directly mentioned in scripture and no two cases of abuse are the same. This is all so diverse. Any abuse situation needs to be handled with the greatest care by the abused member hopefully with the help of their church leaders, civil authorities, biblical counselors. Great wisdom and discernment are needed for such situations. And I'll always say they have to be handled on a case-by-case basis. We'll deal with them all on a case-by-case basis, seeking to apply wisdom to all the various factors that come into play here. There's no real yes or no answer here. It really is dependent But I could say in principle, yes, it does appear that that a case can be made to open the door for biblical divorce, for abuse, interpreting it as a type of abandonment in this passage. Told you that the gray area gets very gray, very fast, and you get lost, but we have to be careful and try and walk wisely and biblically, best we can with the help of God's Spirit. But it's not over, because this person asked a related question, might as well answer it back to back. And question three, is remarriage ever biblical if your spouse is still alive? Is remarriage ever biblical if your spouse is still alive? And obviously talking about someone who's divorced, hence remarriage. Is it ever biblical if your spouse is still living? And this question presumes upon Romans 7, where he talks about death, breaking the marriage covenant, and opens the possibility of remarriage. Yes, we agree with that. That seems very clear in Romans 7. But is remarriage after divorce ever biblically allowed if your former spouse 
They're still alive. They have not died yet. Remarriage questions are the hardest because the Bible says so little about them directly. But we can establish, I think, two ground rules. First, biblical divorce opens biblical remarriage. Biblical divorce, with proper exceptions, opens biblical remarriage. Matthew 19.9, Jesus himself included remarriage with divorce when he talked about the exception of adultery. It seems the whole point of making allowance for divorce was to enable the faithful partner to remarry free from legal ramifications and with clear conscience. However, in the other direction, we can say a second ground rule, unbiblical divorce closes biblical remarriage in general. In general, unbiblical divorce closes biblical remarriage. Here's still in 1 Corinthians 7. Go, go back to verses 10 and 11 because Paul just talked about this. This is talking about uh, believers. Verse 10, he says, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Leave, divorce, they're used in parallel. He's talking about divorce here. The believing spouse is not to divorce their spouse. If they do, you must remain single. You're not allowed biblically to remarry. Your only option of remarriage is go back to the spouse you unbiblically divorced. And that would seem to be the fruit of their repentance of their unbiblical divorce. That seems pretty clear, but we all know that in life, things get messy real fast and confusing real fast. For example, what if you have a woman who, who sinfully divorces her husband, just leaves, there's no biblical exception, this is not a legitimate biblical divorce, but she leaves. But a couple years later, she sees her wrongdoing. She's come to a change of heart. She's repentant, sees the wrong. And this passage says, that her only remarriage option is to go back to her former spouse and be remarried. So she tries to do that. But what if her former husband has remarried? What then? Do you force him to get a divorce so that the two of them can be remarried? Well, no, we would say two wrongs don't make a right. Remarriage in that case is closed. It's not a possible option to her former husband. What if her former husband is an unbeliever? Whether he left the faith or was never truly saved, what then? Second Corinthians 6 forbids us from marrying an unbeliever. So again, we would say two wrongs don't make a right. Remarriage to her former husband is no longer an option now. And then, of course, what if her former husband has died? Obviously, remarriage to him is not an option. <laughs> it wasn't meant to be funny. It's just kind of obvious. <laughs> So in these cases, uh, the repentant woman cannot fulfill 1 Corinthians 7, verse 11. And so we wonder then, does she have any remarriage recourse? Is it simply the Lord's will for her to remain unmarried for the rest of her days? And there are some who would say, yes, even this happened when she was all 22, unbiblical uh, divorce, remarriage not possible to her former spouse. She must remain single for the rest of her life. But this verse doesn't make clear if her unmarried state is to become permanent or only permanent so long as remarriage to her former husband is, is an option. 
It, it just doesn't say either way. And in such cases, again, given the ambiguity, what's not directly stated, many others, including our church, take the position that remarriage to another would be allowed. Those unbiblically divorced must seek restoration with their previous spouse. Remarriage is closed, generally. The only exceptions would be if the former spouse has remarried, is an unbeliever, or has died. Once again, we we have to stress, though, this is a wisdom issue. It's not a black and white sin issue. These instances have to be handled on a case-by-case basis because there are so many other variables that come into play here. Just in general, with all these marriage and divorce issues, you have to just equip yourself with the full toolbox of biblical principles on marriage and divorce and then just try and apply them as best you can to the mess of life with wisdom and with grace. We all know sin has made quite a mess of this world and all of its relationships. Thankfully, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that still enables us to live with peace and hope and joy. What that looks like when it comes to these issues of divorce and remarriage will rarely fit the cookie-cutter prescriptions of Scripture. There's just not enough said in our estimation. But we're left... I think in God's will to just diligently pursue and obtain his wisdom that we might navigate these waters just in a manner pleasing to him while avoiding shipwreck. That's our desire. We just, we want to be pleasing to him. We want to honor his word, his will for marriage. He has a high view of marriage, a low view of divorce. We will have the same and just seek his wisdom to to do our, our best humbly to navigate these waters. Well, our time is, is running. We have one last question to get through, so let's turn to it now. Question number four for this morning. If a homosexual couple tells you they're getting married, how should you respond? If a homosexual couple tells you they're getting married, how should you respond? Do you say congrats? Do you attend the wedding? Do you rebuke them right then and there? How do you respond? Those in the world would immediately celebrate with the couple because they think there's nothing wrong with homosexuality. But the reason this question is being asked is because we believe there is something wrong with homosexuality. It's accepted in our society now, as we know, but it just brings the question, like, how do we deal with this? It it will probably happen to you eventually, a neighbor, so how do you respond? Here, as we've been doing, it's just worthwhile to quickly affirm what the Bible says first, what we do know. And the Bible makes crystal clear that homosexuality is is still a serious sin before God. I'll give you one verse that people pay attention to less, but it's 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 10. 1 Timothy 1, 8 says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. You see, in this passage, homosexuality is called out right after the sexually immoral in general. It comes right after murder, right before kidnapping. And so in scripture's view, homosexuality is not just an innocent act of love. It is still before God morally wrong. 
And like Paul said, these laws, God's law, are for the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. Homosexuality is sinful and unholy before God who defines such things. If you're still in 1 Corinthians 7, just turn back to 1 Corinthians 6. And for theocratic Israel, where church and state were the same thing in the Old Testament, homosexuality came with the death penalty. That is no longer the case. The church does not bear the sword. But the New Testament makes clear that this sin and all sins still carry with them a penalty greater than death. Eternal death. Like in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, where he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All of these are serious sins. Homosexuality is too, but none of these are unforgivable sins. At the end of the day, all of us are unrighteous and guilty before God, whether it's homosexuality or something else. We all are guilty by something in in God's law. We all are unrighteous. None of us will or deserves to inherit the kingdom of God. The only reason we do is because God forgives by his grace through the offering of his son. All who all need Jesus, and he died for all types of sins, including homosexuality. And it's only then by faith in him can we be forgiven and find newness of life and a new heart. As it says in the next verse, verse 11, right after he says, such were some of you. The Corinthians were guilty of all these things. Not anymore. Such were some of you. You used to be like that. But he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Biblically, though, we have to say homosexuality is is a serious sin. And accordingly, God does not recognize gay marriage. The institution of marriage is defined by God, not the state. He created it before marriage. It's never the state's job to authenticate marriage. It's God's job. And God has defined it between one man and one woman from the beginning. That just will never change. End of story. Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, they shall become one flesh. So because of this, our response to, for example, an announcement of gay marriage cannot be divorced from our biblical views of homosexuality. Namely that it's a serious sin and it's an act of rebellion against God and his created order. And so accordingly, we can talk about how we, we cannot respond We cannot affirm or celebrate homosexuality or gay marriage in any way. How can we love and affirm what God hates? How can we rejoice in unrighteousness? That's what you would be doing. 1 Corinthians 13, 6. Do not, or love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. The world thinks it's love, but we define love as God defines. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Romans 12, 9, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22, examine everything carefully, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And the same reasoning would prevent us from attending a gay wedding. And maybe some of you already have attended a gay wedding, but I would just really challenge you to think through what that signifies from a biblical perspective. Wedding attendance is not a neutral act. Just say that again. Wedding attendance is not a neutral act. 
The whole point of a wedding ceremony is to hold a public celebration of that marriage. That's the whole point. All in attendance serve as willing witnesses to those marriage vows. Your mere presence without objection in a gay wedding communicates you're celebrating this union. That goes against all of our biblical convictions. We, we do not celebrate this union. How could you attend and participate in the celebration and as a witness of this union? It helps to think of a, a parallel example. Imagine you have close friends, husband and wife. They've been married for a long time. But it comes out the husband's been living in adultery for years. He's decided to abandon his wife and kids and run off with his mistress. He's unrepentant. It goes through church discipline. He digs in his heels. He's not repenting, doesn't care. He's hardened, and off he goes. He's put out of the church, but he doesn't care. He divorces his old wife. He marries his mistress real fast. And later, you are invited to his new wedding. So would you attend? Those in the world would have no problem with that. Hey, whatever makes you happy, good for you. But you realize adultery is right there alongside homosexuality and all that, those lists of behavior that God abhors. It's a serious sin. It can be forgiven and washed clean by Christ. With repentance, there's grace. But it's, it's just as serious a sin. And furthermore, in this example, this man has deserted his family. His remarriage is unbiblical, like we just talked about. So would you attend that wedding? Either way, there would be relational consequences. To attend would signal approval of his actions and would greatly mar your relationship with the abandoned wife. To not attend would signal disapproval of his actions and would greatly mar your relationship with the man. Either way, there's going to be consequences. But I trust you would be bound by your conscience, which is guided by scripture. You can't rejoice in or affirm his unrighteousness, unbiblical divorce, unbiblical remarriage, an act of high-handed rebellion. How can you affirm that? Now, with homosexuality, I know as Christians, we're facing increasing and monumental pressure just to to give up and give in on this issue. Just kind of like, give it up already. Just confirm and conform, accept gay marriage, just get over it. Well, I need to give you two more points to consider. And for one, morality is not determined by popular vote. The Lord determines right and wrong. And if Jesus is truly your Lord, you're bound By him, you're bound to him and his word. You can't say or do otherwise. It's a question of fear. I'm sure your fear of man is strong, but will you fear God more? Whom do you fear? To go against God's clear word would be to invite judgment now on yourself. And God issues a stern warning to those who invert his morality. Like Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And secondly, you just have to realize this culture has already been handed over to sin. Just read Romans 1. It's, this has already happened. They have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so they already have been fully given over to a depraved mind to do the things that are not proper. We would too, apart from the grace of God, but nonetheless, this is the state of our culture. And this means, though, that the sexual revolution is not stopping at gay marriage. We knew that would happen back in, what, 2015, 2016, when they legalized gay marriage. We knew, like, okay, that's not the end. Now we're witnessing transgenderism, gender anarchy. It's just kind of a free-for-all out there with these issues. But listen, 
They will not stop until they get from you full capitulation. They will not stop coming after you and pressuring you until you celebrate all that they do, all of their sins with them right alongside of them. When a gay couple tells you they're getting married, I know part of you just wants to say, hey, congrats, and just move on, hide. You, you want to avoid trouble. You don't want to be labeled a bigot. You want to escape notice. It seems like the easier thing to do. Or what if this is a family member? I mean, think about all the family drama. If you don't say otherwise, if you don't attend that wedding, you don't want that. It's, it's easier. It's so much easier just to say, oh, good for you. Congrats. But what about in five years when it's a trans couple that's getting married? Or a three-person marriage? Or an adult and a minor? Where are you going to draw the line? You have to understand for, for biblical Christians, there's no real third option. You're either going to, to be consistent, go all the way, the way of the Lord, or all the way, the way of the world. And beware. So then, how should you respond to an announcement of gay marriage? Well, it's not complicated. Just speak the truth in love. Both, not one or the either. Speak the truth in love. Whereas unbelievers have suppressed the truth of God and unrighteousness, we can't do that. We can't suppress the truth. We have to speak the truth. That means, in a negative sense, we just can't condone or celebrate their marriage. It's something we cannot do. In truth, we would have to call it out as sin, as Scripture does. But in love, we would not communicate that in a prideful, self-righteous, or hateful way. And speaking the truth in love would often involve us you know, even communicating our own sin, our own unrighteousness before God. But communicating the hope of the gospel that, like we just read in 1 Corinthians 6, those all can be justified in Christ. All can be forgiven, washed, sanctified, and made new. We have to share the hope of the gospel to this uh, lost and dying world. All manner of sin can be forgiven. All manner of sinners can be made new. We can say that with as much gentleness and compassion as we can muster, but speak the truth in love. What, what else can we do? And yes, I am very sure such a response will jeopardize your relationship with this couple. That's not on you. That's on them. Realize, this is what Jesus meant when he said, Matthew 10, 34, I did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. You want homework, just read all of Matthew 10. That's an intense chapter on what it means to be his disciple. But he says near the end, I didn't actually come to bring peace on earth. Not yet. It happens when he returns. He came to bring a sword. And he goes on to talk about how following him is going to divide families. Father, mother, husband, wife, parent, children. Discipleship will divide your relationships. Because following Jesus in the light will automatically put you at odds with those who are walking in the darkness. The darkness hates the light. But the true disciple of Jesus loves him so much that, well, what can we do? We, we will just bear that shame and that scorn from the world. What can we do? You just realize in the end, someone will not be affirmed. Either that gay couple will not be affirmed or the Lord will not be affirmed. Someone will be denied. You have to choose. But just remember that at the end of the day and at the end of all days, you don't stand before the world and give an account. You stand before the Lord and give an account. You need to fear him more than those who are in the world. Stand firm in the faith while speaking the truth in love. Trust God. He will care for you in the midst of all these issues. I know the darker it gets out there, the harder it is to be a light. But it also means you have the greater chance for the light to shine brighter when it's surrounded by deep darkness. So let us not put out the light 
Let the light of the gospel shine in love while speaking the truth. That's how we respond to all of these issues in our culture. Hopefully that helps. These questions are so important because that's a question one person had. I'm sure everyone had. And that's what the benefit of these Q&A messages. That'll do it for now, though. Let's finish in a word of prayer. Our Lord who is in heaven, we thank you that you're a God of truth and love yourself. In truth, you're a just God who looks upon sin with displeasure. It, it offends your perfect holiness. And in your justice, you must judge that sin. You're a righteous God and judge. But yet you are also full of love. You, you are defined by the self-giving love. And it's in that love and justice that you sent Christ to bear them both on the cross. And on that cross came the intersection of your love and your justice, where we think about all of our sin. All of us in this room have a talk about a sin debt we cannot repay against you. Whether homosexuality or any other sin, we have a, a huge list of debt and sins that we cannot repay. But you sent your son Christ in your love to bear that full weight on himself, to bear it all in our place that we might be forgiven, washed, sanctified, made new, even now inheriting eternal life. This is your love and your grace. And as we reflected this morning that this message of the cross is just foolishness to the world. They will hate us for, for preaching it, for hoping in it. But we still know it's, it's their only hope. It's our only hope. This is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Help us not to be ashamed of Christ or his gospel. To not be ashamed of the cross, but to just cling to it, to share it with others in great love, speaking that truth in love, and hoping in it for our own life and our own uh, destiny. We trust your will, Lord, and we pray you will assist us. We know you will in all these questions. Be with us uh, and guide us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.